We've taken the title just from what I read to you this morning, Light for a Little While Longer. Uh, if you just scan back for a second here, we saw that in verse 20, some Greeks had come uh, and requested an audience with the Lord Jesus Christ, and that resulted in Philip and Andrew coming to Jesus Christ, which triggered the conversation where we still are today. That actually triggered it when Philip and Andrew came to him, and the conversation centered around, if you look around verse 23 or so, the conversation centered around the fact that the hour had now come for the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is the hour which his death is now imminent. There are some things that will take place, but basically it's right at hand, his hour for his death. And he explained that he must die. And that has been kind of the conversation as it has been going on the last few weeks as we've been studying John chapter 12. We also have noted it as we progressed into last week's message that while Jesus had been challenged emotionally, even from the perspective of should I try to get out of this situation or, you know, even raising the question uh, because he was troubled there in verse 27. And then as he examined it, he knew that this was the purpose of which he came. And so his emotions were controlled by the fact that he brought them in subjection to the word of God. And in doing so, he was obedient to the Father's will, which means he sets his mind toward the death on the cross. And last week we noted that that obedience brought, as we pointed out to you, among other things, at least three major areas that I wanted to get across to you. By obeying the Father, it would bring glory to him and to the Father. And that was his interest in bringing glory to the Father. Secondly, it would bring judgment. And if you look at verses 27 to 33, you'll see this here. And it would bring judgment, first of all, on the world, and secondly, on Satan himself, uh, or the ruler of this world, and we spoke about that last week. And we ended with the fact, that through verse 27, that it also provided salvation to those who would believe. And so his obedience resulted in those things. Now, as we pick it up in verse 34, on down to the end of the chapter, our text today, we are now coming to the end of the conversation. That's why I went back to the Greeks coming to him. That's what initiated this conversation. We're now coming to the end of it. And it's a very crucial passage in relationship to the gospel according to John. And the reason for that is two other things are accomplished here. One, in these verses from 34 to 50, he basically is summarizing everything that we have learned. He's referring back to a number of things that we have seen. He's summarizing his teachings of the first 12 chapters. And in effect, he's bringing his public ministry to a close. And he's also, the second part of it is, is a preparation for what is going to come, beginning in verse 13. So he's kind of summarizing everything that's been going on, and then he's preparing us for what will come. Now, what's going to come? Obviously, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, because his time is at hand, his hour has come. Also, from verse chapter 13 on, we're going to see, other than his uh, public trials and so forth, that it's going to be more a private ministry to his disciples. So the whole book is, is changing here where we're going to move from that public ministry and set the tone for his private ministry to his disciples. And in doing that in our text, first of all, we have an appeal. Uh, and his appeal is going to be this morning here, as is outlined for you and as is titled for you and so forth, 
is that the people are only going to have light with them for a short period of time. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ that he's referring to. And now is the time to believe in him while they have the light actually physically in his presence. So we see this, that it, is, it begins with an appeal to believe, as I have in the outline, in verses 34 to 36. He appeals to the people again. I want you to notice several things as we go through and exegete the passage to you. In verse 34, you'll notice right away, and I have read that, that the crowd answered him that we've heard out of the law. And just a very simple observation right at the beginning. These people knew the Old Testament. Now, the law could be referring to just the first five books. But I think personally, as the crowd is mentioning the law, it's probably referring to the entire Old Testament. And I'll show you one of the reasons why I think that could be in just a moment. But they knew the scriptures. It wasn't that they didn't have knowledge of the scriptures. I want you to notice also from verse 34 that they also knew that a Messiah was to come and they associated the, the Messiah with the title the Son of Man because they say that to him as well. The Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man? They knew their Old Testament, supposedly. They knew something of the Scriptures and they knew that the Messiah and the Son of Man were one and the same, and they were to be associated together. However, a problem arose with them. They could not fit, now listen carefully, they could not fit the truth of what Jesus Christ was telling them into their theology. And so they were rejecting it. They had preconceived ideas. And they were rejecting the truth that was put before them. Very important. Now, as far as the situation, they basically, what I'm saying to you, could not understand and they couldn't make everything fit into their thinking. How could this Messiah, how could this Son of Man die? It doesn't fit my theology. It doesn't go there. And what they said is they couldn't understand how he could remain forever and how he could also die at the same time. doesn't make sense to me, is what they were saying. Now, we don't know the text that they were actually referring to. It could have been a text out of Deuteronomy. I could show you a couple there. But I think probably when I said the law was going to the Old Testament, probably something that was very fresh in their mind was from Daniel. If you turn with me to the book of Daniel for a second, Daniel chapter 7, and I want you to see what I'm talking about with this theology, because I'm going to make a couple of comments on it. Daniel chapter 7. Here's an example. This is one of the texts that could have been. I'm not saying that it was, but it could have been in their mind. Because in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, it says this. I keep looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. Now watch. His dominion is an everlasting dominion 
which will not pass pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so their familiarity, maybe with other passages as well, because there's many in the Old Testament, but certainly one like this, they would have been familiar with this person called the Son of Man, was the Messiah that was going to have this kingdom, but it will be an everlasting kingdom. It will endure forever. Remember, they were looking for a military leader in our context. And now you're telling us that the Son of Man has got to go to the cross and die. It doesn't fit our theology. You know why it didn't fit their theology? Turn with me to Isaiah 53. I'll show you why. Isaiah 53. Now, verse 1 is going to be quoted in just a little while. But I don't want you to go to verse 1 for right now. I want you to go to verses 9 through 12. Here is the problem with man's theology. In verse 9 of Isaiah 53, it says this. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with the rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased, watch, to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will also see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and a good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, that's Messiah, that's the Son of Man, will justify many, as he will bear their iniquities. Watch verse 12. Therefore I will allot him with a portion portion with the great. He will be divided the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to what? Death. And was numbered with the transgressions, yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. Now, I wanted you to see that passage for several reasons. One, to be familiar with it in the context of what we're talking about here in in John. But I wanted you to see this. You see, they thought they knew their Old Testament. But they had to somehow squeeze Isaiah 53 into their theology. And it didn't fit. So what did they do? They made it fit. And they came up with other explanations that this wasn't the Messiah. And Israel still does that today. This is talking about the nation of Israel. And they were making Scripture mean things that it didn't even say. That is an absolute tendency and a danger, and I want you to get this, for everyone in this room starting right here in this pulpit. And you can shut me off, you can do what you want, but if you miss this point you still will hear it responsibly before God. The danger is that we think we got all the answers to everything. And if it doesn't fit right in where I want, and that was their problem. They said, how could the Son of Man die? You know why? Because they didn't take Isaiah 53 for exactly what it said. And when they couldn't get it to fit in, they rejected it, as being part of what the Messiah would come like. 
And the problem was, the Scriptures clearly taught that the Messiah was coming as the Son of Man with an everlasting kingdom, but He was also coming to die. And they wouldn't fit it in. And we have to be careful that we don't try to fit all of the Scriptures into our theology, and we end up changing the Scripture or neglecting those passages which make us uncomfortable. And I could go on and on the whole morning message on this, because there are many areas of Scripture in which you look at them, for example, the responsibility of man to believe in the sovereignty of God, and people go and they have to fit them into their theology, when in reality it says both and you can't escape it, as you're going to see in just a few moments. We need to leave the scriptures as they are. Our job is not to change or add or delete, and it's dangerous. Our job is to be the messenger to proclaim it as it says it, without adding or subtracting. And anybody that stands in a pulpit should be ready to give the whole counsel of God, not just what the people want to hear. And these people saying to Jesus Christ, look at it, that's what it says. We know the law. He's supposed to remain for How can you say that he would be lifted up? Well, if they really knew the law, they would have been able to say, you're right. We can't reconcile it, but it did say it had an everlasting kingdom, but it also said he had to die. So you are explaining something that's very consistent. No, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do that. So what happens? So what they say to him is... You say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Now, it's really not a case where they're saying who among us. Uh, first of all, it's obvious that, they're not re- that they are rejecting excuse me, Jesus Christ. They're not accepting what he said about himself and everything that he showed him. But really, the question is something like this. What kind of man is he? That's where really what that meaning is. When it says, who is the Son of Man? What kind of man is this that would die and have an ever- everlasting kingdom? That's kind of what they're conveying to him. Because you've said that he's got to die. And so in rejecting, what kind of man is he, by the way? Let me tell you what kind of man he is. Because I just thought of it went back to Isaiah. You know who the Messiah is? He's a man of sorrows. He's a man of grief. He's a man that died for sin. He's a man that was a sacrifice to satisfy the righteousness of God. He was also a man who is king of kings and Lord of Lords, who came to this world. He was God in the flesh. That's who the Son of Man is. And see, because of all of those things, being unable to jive in the man of mine, he ends up doing what Romans says, and that is he makes himself wise and becomes a fool, rather than accepting it at face value. That's the problem they had. So how does Jesus reply? In verses 35 and 36, I already read them, look at it. Jesus says, I'm only here a little longer. Who's he talking about? Himself. How do we know that? Because he says in verse 35, So Jesus said to them, For a little while the light is among you. Who is the light? He's already shown them. Now you read, so for time's sake I won't turn to those, John chapter 1 this morning. He was the light that came into the world. Men love darkness rather than light. That's what our passage is dealing with. They didn't want the light. He has also said to them, turn with me to John chapter 3. Just see what he's told us in the gospel, why I say it's a summary of everything we've been uh, studying together and learning through John. 
In John chapter 3, look at verses 19, 19 through 21. This is the judgment, that light has come into the world. Who is that light? It is Jesus Christ, from John chapter 1. And men, watch this, love darkness rather than light. Why? Very important to our text. For their deeds were evil. Some of you have been hear, hearing light and been hearing the gospel and have been hearing things related to Christ and are still rejecting them today. Why? Men love darkness. It says, for everyone, verse 20, who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds would be exposed. Nobody likes that. Nobody likes to be exposed. And people won't come to the light. People don't want to recognize even that there's a God because now I'm responsible to God. Or they don't want to recognize that Jesus is the one and only Messiah because if I do that, there's no other way. My religion doesn't work. My good works don't work. Nothing else works. And so they don't want to come to the light of Jesus Christ because they want to go on with their life the way it is and they don't want to be exposed. But he who practices the truth, watch this, comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Go quickly to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, verse 12, remember this? Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am, what? The light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And there it is again. So throughout the gospel already, it's no surprise when we get to chapter 12, that he says, while you have the light among you, walk in that light. Who's he referring to? Himself. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Jesus Christ is the one who manifests God to us. Do you understand that? We would not know who God is in any deep sense apart from the revelation that comes to us through Jesus Christ, number one, and through the Word of God. We know we have creation, but that has its limitations. It can tell us the power of God. It can tell us the majesty of God, but it can't tell us whether he's a loving God, whether he's a God of justice and so forth. Jesus Christ came to manifest him as light. He reveals the Father to us. That's what it says in John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. But turn with me to Colossians chapter 2 because I want you to see an important text. Colossians chapter 2, most of you know this. But verse 9, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, that is Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You're either going to accept that or reject it. It's pretty straightforward. Jesus Christ, that's what we mean by manifestation. That's what we mean by revealing. That's what we mean by uh, making known, if you will, to people. It is in the face of Jesus Christ that we see God, very God. That is God in the flesh. He took on flesh. He's the manifestation. And he is. The, the, you want to know God? You'll see it in Jesus Christ, as we'll see in our context. The world, basically, back in our text, John chapter 12, the world loves darkness, so the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. That's pretty straightforward, by the way, because what it's dealing with is the unbeliever, the one who hasn't come to Christ, 
The one who won't come to the light, which is the crowd, by the way, they're stumbling through life. That's what it's saying in just simple, common terms. When he's saying that he doesn't know where he goes, there are many people that you're rubbing shoulders with every single day. They don't know why they're here. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what's happening. They just enjoy their sin. That's what it's talking about. They won't come to Jesus Christ. They won't come and be exposed. They don't want to come to the light of God and his truth. And yet Jesus is appealing to them to believe. And that's what he's doing. He's appealing to them. Come and believe. You have the light with you. I'm not going to be here much longer. And it's kind of a final appeal to them that in this short period of time, they need to believe. They need to trust. And you'll notice that in verse 36. While you have the light... You cannot get away. And here's that, those two things that everybody tries to fit in a theology. You can't get away from it. He says, believe. He appeals to them. Believe in the lights. And he puts the responsibility there. Now, I'll get to the part where he talks about his divine part of it in just a few moments. But you can't avoid this part of it. He appeals to them to, to believe. And that's what they need to do, to trust, to put faith. If you're here today and haven't come to trust in Jesus Christ, you need to trust in him. You need to believe in him. Why? He tells you. So that you may become sons of light. They weren't sons of light. This is an our subjective middle. And what's it dealing with? It's dealing with a point in time that they need to come to this. I have experienced in my life as a pastor people saying to me, as I've talked to them, well, I've always believed in God. I can never remember a time that I wasn't a believer. If there's anyone in this audience right now that cannot remember a time that you were a believer, you better examine whether you are one now. And the reason is you, got, you were in darkness and you had to come to the point of repentance and turning to Jesus Christ or you never got saved in the first place. There's a lot of people that say they knew God or they had religious teaching in their home or they knew some things about Christ when they were growing up and they believed in a birth in Bethlehem and they, they believed in a resurrection at Easter time, but they've never truly repented of their sin and come to Christ. And what it's dealing with is the same thing, and I want you to see it. Go back to John chapter 1 for one second. Just verse 12. As people are not, you know, we think as Americans, you know, as Americans, I grew up in the United States, I'm a Christian. You ought to talk more about being a slave of Christ than you should a Christian, by the way. Nothing wrong with the term Christian, but Christian is used so loosely today, nobody knows what a Christian is anymore. Christian is just a religious person. No, not really. And I want you to see something. You don't inherit it, you become it when you believe. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, that is the light of the world. That is the light that he's talking about in John chapter 12. That is Jesus Christ. Now watch. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. You are not born into the world physically as a United States citizen, as a Christian. You're not born anywhere in the world as a Christian. You come to, you become a Christian, you become a child of God, or in our context, you become a son of light by believing in the light. That is Jesus Christ. And that's the only way you become a son of light. You're not born that way. You must come to believe. You must recognize yourself as a sinner. 
and unable to save yourself through religion or any other way. And that's what he's appealing to them with. Look, I've been with you. I am the light. I'm not going to be here much longer. You need to believe in me to get out of the darkness you're in. And that darkness is a spiritual darkness. This world is living in spiritual darkness without... There's all kinds of religion going on. But spiritual darkness in re relationship to the truth and the reality of the revelation of God and who he really is. In that verse, you then see what happens. Jesus hid himself. He conceived, uh, concealed himself from them. It's been seen that way a couple of times in the text, but I think also in the context, he's probably not only had gone away from them, but he concealed the truth from them because that's what it goes into in the very next section. The second section is not only is he appealing to them to believe, but I want you to notice the prophetic fulfillment of unbelief. And there's two aspects that are seen here. The human responsibility and the divine cause of unbelief. They go together, folks. You cannot get away from them. In verses 37 through 43. You notice in 37, But though he had performed so many signs, now John's only shown us about seven of them, before them, yet, watch, they were not believing in him. He appealed to them, believe in me. It's the human side of it. He said they had the evidence, but they didn't believe. I want to say several things before I read the passages to you. On the human side, everything was presented to them. They had many signs, even beyond that which we've seen in the gospel according to John. Folks, miracles alone do not bring a person to Christ. Remember that statement? If just a man would rise from the dead, send them back to my brothers, they'd believe. No, they won't. I wish our society could get that one. Religious circles and all the stuff that's on TV and these programs and so forth, the concept is come and see a miracle and then they're going to believe on Jesus Christ. They had miracle upon miracle. They saw wine that came from water. They saw an impotent man healed. Now, this is just some of the things that we've seen. They've seen all kinds of situations throughout this uh, passage, these passages. They've seen Lazarus get raised from the dead, and they still don't believe. You know why? The purpose of the miracles were to authenticate who Jesus Christ was. That's why the miracles were there. It was to give evidence. It was the same in the Old Testament. The miracles that would give evidence to who Moses was, to who Elijah was. It's going to be evidence in the future as far as even the two witnesses, what they're able to do. It's not per se to get them believe, to believe alone because miracles, men will just change and turn. It's to give evidence and to manifest, to verify, to authenticate who Jesus is. Why? Because the miracles show just the blindness of man again. So man has to believe. But you notice there is also, and you cannot escape it, there is a divine cause of unbelief. Look at verses 38 to 43. It, well, let's first of all go down to verse 41. It makes us uncomfortable when we read it. Folks, it's in the scriptures. It says in verse 38, This was to fulfill the word that Isaiah the prophet, which said, Lord, who had believed our report. And to whom have the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's Isaiah 53.1. You can look at it on your own. For this reason, they could not believe. Why could they not believe? Isaiah said again, He who God 
has blinded their eyes, <clears throat> and he has hardened their hearts, so that they would not see, and their eyes perceive, and their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. You cannot escape it, folks. What you've got is the appeal to man and his responsibility to believe and also the sovereignty of God that has caused their unbelief. Can't get away from it. That's what it says. It says God specifically blinded them. And if you want the reference, it's in Isaiah chapter 6 that he's referring to in verse 10. He blinded them. How does that come together then, Pastor Dan? Well, let me give you one passage, then we'll go to a second one. Go with me to Matthew chapter 26 for a moment. It's hard for us as human beings to perceive this. But you can't take one of the theologies, such as Arminianism, and just say it's all that you've got it all on the responsibility of men. And you also can't go all the way to the other extreme and recognize the sovereignty of God and throw out all of those passages that deal with the appeals or try to explain them away. How does it come together? Only in the mind of God, and our responsibility is to present it exactly the way it is. Matthew 26, verse 34. It's speaking of Judas Iscariot. I'm sorry, verse 24. What does it say? It talks about the fact that he's going to betray him. And notice this. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. Why? The Scriptures said that Judas would betray him. But watch. But woe to the man, that man, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Why? It would have been good for that man, man if he had never been born. God brings him in his mind into perfect harmony. And what he's saying is, Judas Iscariot, you are responsible for your own actions. And also, the scriptures said, Judas, that you would do it. And by the way, is he in heaven when he repented later on? Absolutely not. This passage ought to make it clear. It would have been better that he had never been born. Why? Because his eternity is being spent in hell. Sovereignty of God in moving in uh, his heart? Yes. His own choice in doing it? absolutely he can't escape the responsibility so that brings us to the passage in Romans chapters 9 10 and 11 and I won't look at it all because of our time where he actually deals with the nation of Israel but I do want you to see two things go with me to Romans chapter 9 verse 14 Romans chapter 9 verse 14 and I want to put it in its context why Christians have sometimes a real problem with this. Because in verses 9 through 12, it says, Listen, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, and that's the bottom line. They didn't do anything good, anything bad. God made that choice. And so some people turn around and say, I can't accept that. That's exactly what the sovereignty of God is. You can't get away from it. God did it. Well, then, then you have the responsibility to believe in it. Yes. Verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. God knows exactly what he's doing. Well, what do we conclude? Go all the way to the end of chapter 11 of Romans. I think this is what we conclude. Verse 33. 
Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable. Didn't we just sing about that? Did the teens have something? Indescribable and so forth. And isn't, wow, that's appropriate. Fit the course. What does it say? His judgments are unfathomable in his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Do you? Do I? But Jesus Christ does. Or who became his counselor? Who has the right to turn around to the potter and say, why did you make me this way? None of us. What does it say? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And that's where the Christian should rest. We can't fit everything into our theology. We can't always understand the things of God. And what he's saying to them as he's facing them is you need to believe in the light while I am here. You're responsible. But also God has a divine situation. And one of the reasons you can't see is because God's also blinding your heart and blinding your mind. You say, I can't bring them together. Watch. God works miracles. Because when you go back to John chapter 12, we see this. Verses 41 to 43. These things Isaiah said because he saw the glory that he had spoken to him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would put them out of the synagogues. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. In spite of everything, none of us would come to believe, but some come to believe. Why? By the grace of God. And the appeal needs to go out to our world today. What is our appeal? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not be saved. You will spend eternity in hell and leave the rest to God. Give the message out. Who will believe our report? The ones that God opens up and in our context... I believe by the, now this can be understood one of two ways, just so you're aware of it. It says, nevertheless, many of the rulers believed on him. We've seen throughout the account here, by the way, in uh, um, John, that sometimes people said they believed and the Lord didn't commit himself to them and they really didn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so is it that sense it's meant here? I don't think so, and I'll tell you why, because of the context. The context is a contrast. It's the idea that they wouldn't believe, but some of, even some of the rulers came to believe. However, they were pretty weak believers, if they were genuine believers. Why? They wanted the approval of men. They feared for their position. They didn't want to, we've been seeing that in John, they didn't want to get cast out of the synagogue. They liked to be patted on the back. They enjoyed the praise of men. Don't be, if it's a genuine Christian here, don't be that type of Christian. We ought to profess Jesus Christ. In fact, Romans says one of the evidences are that we will profess. Is it possible that they profess later? I don't know. It doesn't tell us who the rulers were. But we do know as we study the scriptures that one of the rulers that we saw in John chapter 3 by the name of Nicodemus later speaks up. We know Joseph of Arimathea. He later speaks up. In the book of Acts, 
after that miraculous situation with the tongues and the Lord Jesus Christ works through the power of the Holy Spirit there in the text, it says, I think it's in chapter 6 of Acts, uh, where it says that many of the rulers started to come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe they became more bold then. I don't know. But it's a sad scenario if someone's a true believer and then they're fearing men and they won't witness to them or they won't do anything else just in the practical sense. And that is where a lot of professing Christians are today. Filled with excuses for why they can't do things. And the reason is they're afraid of men. Remember, the gospel is powerful. The gospel is able to change lives for all eternity. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So are these true believers or not? I believe in the context they probably were true believers and not in the sense uh, that some of the others who the Lord didn't commit himself to. So how does it end? Well, in verses 44 to 50, and I'll just summarize it for you. You can look at the passage. The consequences of belief and unbelief are put there. Jesus cries out in one last appeal to them, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but him who sent me. That's why I went to the Colossians passage so early. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. If you want to know what God looks like, look in the face of Jesus Christ. If you want to know who God is, look to Jesus Christ. That is God in the flesh. If you want to believe in God, you need to believe in his Son. And he clearly says that he will only honor, that is God says, only honor those who honor the Son. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, verse 46. So that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as what? The one and only true Savior. And recognize that you as a human being are a sinner and lost, cannot measure up to the standards of God cannot save yourself, cannot do anything to perfect the favor of God. But Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice. That's why his death is coming. That's what it was all about. And the light of the world would be lifted up on the cross so that those that look to that light and trust in him and believe in him become sons of light. They will not remain in darkness. And notice verse 47 is key because the evidence is if you hear my sayings, and you do not keep them. We also need to see that when there's a true profession, you will follow. You will believe. Obedience will happen. But if you reject, what happens? I'm summarizing it. You'll be judged. Jesus Christ came to save. We know that all judgment will be committed to him. But this is frightening. Listen. He who rejects me and does not, verse 48, receive my sayings, has one who judges him, watch this, the word I spoke is what will judge that man or judge him in the last day. That's frightening. These people in this crowd who haven't come to trust in Christ and those who did not come to trust in Christ will one day stand before him and the very words that they heard will be the evidence against them as they are judged for all eternity to go in to the lake of fire. That's the essence of really what it goes on. And you notice it talks about his eternal life that he came to give in verse 50. I know I'm bouncing over the last few verses. It's only because of time. Because I want to get you to the practical application of this. There are tremendous consequences to belief and unbelief. 
And as far as application, these people had so many signs, verse 37. These people had the light of Jesus Christ's presence and the best teaching in the world that they could have had. But they could not fit that into their theology. And those who did not believe will face and are facing right now the consequences of that unbelief. But how much evidence has been given to you? You who are here who have not yet trusted in Christ. The word of God will stand against you in the day of judgment if you don't come to believe. You are without excuse. You have heard that Jesus Christ is the way, truth, and life. You have heard that he is the light of the world. You have heard that he's the only Savior. And it will be against you if you don't believe on him. And what will you face? The same consequence of darkness, damnation, separated from God for all eternity. It is real, folks. And I showed you that Satan, who even got to Judas Iscariot, I showed you this morning that Satan himself, it would have been better that he not be born. Why? Because he is suffering in hell now. It was his responsibility, though God was divinely working in it. What will it take? God has to open up your understanding. But if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's our appeal, just like Jesus appealed to them. The light was with them and he appealed, believe, and you'll become sons of light. Believe, and you'll be saved. That's why he came. Believe, and you will have that light in you and life, eternal life. You've got to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the appeal. The appeal is for you to believe the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The only one who knew no sin, who became the perfect sacrifice to satisfy the justice of God because the wages of sin is death, who rose from the grave victoriously, all according to the scriptures, and has overcome death, and is the giver of life to all those who will believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. We don't know how much time we have. You've heard me appeal to that many times. Let me give you two quick applications to wake you up. I mentioned about praying for a referee. I was with a ref, the referee that refed with him the day before that happened. What I'm saying to you is there was a referee that refed with that guy and the very next day is when he had that incident happen and I refed with that guy who it did not happen to the next day. He was with him and he was running around refereeing a game like anybody else. Children, job, everything's fine and his whole life was changed like that. I was talking with somebody this week and these were the words that the person said to me. My life has been busy. My life has been always go, 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 thinking I was in control. Pastor Dan, you got to tell people that if anybody thinks, I'm paraphrasing it now, but this is, this is the reality of what was said at the end. If anybody thinks that they are in control of their life, tell them they are not. And what I said to the person, God is in control. Your life can change like that. Sometimes we go about our business and we think we're always going to have the light. 
We can push off salvation till later. It's not for me. It's sometime when I'm older. I want to have some fun. I want to have some enjoyment. You cannot possibly enjoy this life unless you know the Savior. Don't put it off. Today is the day of salvation. And that's what Jesus Christ was appealing to them. And he said that the words that he was saying to them would be a witness against them in the day of judgment. Don't let this message be a witness against you because you didn't believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today. And Christian, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be like these leaders because there's loss of reward. Yes, we face no condemnation, but don't you kid yourself for one moment. Don't let all that's going on in the name of Christianity and all the confusion that is going on be a witness against you when you've heard truth over and over and over again. Follow the light. Don't change the word of God. Follow what it says and follow him until he takes you home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world. How gracious to be mocked, to be challenged, to be rejected, and yet to continue to appeal over and over again to the heart of man. And we thank you that miraculously you open the hearts of some to understand the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It's my prayer. As Paul prayed and his heart was that all Israel could be saved. My prayer for this audience is that everybody here could be saved and come to the knowledge of Christ. Father, help those who have been resisting the truth to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the light of the world, to repent of their sins and have forgiveness, and to have eternal life. Those of us that know you, Father, encourage us to love you more, to follow you, even when we don't understand some things. Help us not to rest the scriptures. Help us not to twist them to our own destruction. Help, them, help us not to try to fit theology in but, Father, to be ever grateful that we have the whole counsel of God and to accept it as it is and just praise your name and realize how unsearchable and how unfathomable is your wisdom and help us to just continue walking with you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.